Morning, church. Today's scripture reading will be in Haggai chapter 1. It's on page 791 if you're using the Pew Bibles. If you would stand with me in honor of reading God's word. May God's word take root in our hearts today as we read Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shittil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Those, these people say the time has not yet come, to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earned wages does so to put them in a, into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much and behold, it came too little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God has sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord the host, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that has just been read. And we seek to hear it preached faithfully so that you might be glorified and that your church might be built up. Lord, we want to pray for Pastor Fred as he's awaiting uh, his re uh, test results. We pray that it comes um, back um, showing negative, meaning that he's, that he's in the clear. And Lord, we just do pray for you to providentially work in that. And Lord, we just pray right now that you would, by your spirit, uh, that you would move mightily among us. Uh, Lord, thank you for this holiday weekend to celebrate the birth of your son and we continue to come now before you, seeking to hear from your Son through his word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, let me begin with a question. What is the biggest priority in your life right now? What takes up the bulk of your time and attention? What are you always talking about? What do you lay awake at night thinking about? And then what do you subsequently end up dreaming about? What do you spend the most of your money on? What do you worry about the most? What's your biggest fear? Now, the answers to those various questions tend to revolve around the same thing in your life, revealing to you that biggest priority. So I ask you, what is it? What's your biggest priority? Is it school? Is it grades? Is it getting into that university, getting into that program? Is that what you're always thinking about? Is that what you're always talking about with others? Is it being in a relationship? Is that your biggest priority? Or is it the person you're already in a relationship with, that significant other, your spouse, your children, your family? Does your life revolve around family or your aspiration to have a family? Is it your job? Is it vocational success, making the big bucks? Is that what you dream about? Or perhaps the priority is not your success, but your children's. Is that what keeps you up at night? The fear that your kids might fail and not obtain to what you would deem as success. Is that what worries you the most? Or is it what people think about you? Your reputation? How well you're liked? How unique you are? Do you stand out? Or do you dread the thought of standing out? Do you dread the thought of being rejected or ignored? What's your biggest priority. Now, have you ever noticed in your experience that even after you get that particular thing that you want, after you meet your goals, after you gain whatever it is that you're pursuing, that for some reason you're still left feeling unsatisfied and unsettled. So you get that grade that you've been stressing about, and then you realize there's just another exam on the horizon. It never seems to end. Or you enter into that relationship that you've been longing for, but then you realize that relationships just add greater complexity to your life. Or you get married, you start a family, but then, strangely, that void in your life is still there. It hasn't left. Or you get that dream job that you've been chasing, but now it demands far more of you than you expected. It's, it's what you've always wanted, but... But now it might cost you people and cost you things that you never expected to lose or to give up. Now you're accepted by your peers, accepted by your colleagues. Great, you're in the in crowd, but then you realize your deep longing for acceptance and love is still there, still unmet. What's going on? What's happening? Why is it that when we pursue these priorities, even when we achieve them to one degree or another, that we're still left feeling restless and, and, and unfulfilled. Well, church, this morning, I want us to consider the possibility that the restlessness that we feel is the result of misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. 
That means the real question that we need to be asking ourselves is not just what is my biggest priority, but really what should be my biggest priority? What does God's word say ought to be of first importance in my life? I think it goes without saying that what we ought to prioritize usually isn't first on our list. But I'm convinced that it's because of our misplaced priorities we have therefore placed ourselves on a path of perpetual frustration. And if we don't make a change, we're just asking for a life of chronic restlessness. Perhaps you've heard of St. Augustine. Some of us, we, we, last summer, we, we read through uh, his book, Confessions. He's a fifth century bishop and theologian. So you may have heard of him, you may know uh, some things about him, but you probably didn't know that Augustine grew up as an unconverted, hedonistic womanizer with lots of money and time on his hands. But even so, even with access to all worldly pleasures, he was never satisfied. And in his autobiography, Confessions, he famously prayed to God saying, quote, Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. What he means is that we have been created in the image of God with a God-sized void that really can only be filled by God himself. And so we will always be restless trying to fill that emptiness until we fill it with God, until we find our rest in him. And that's basically the message of the book of Haggai in a nutshell. This morning, we're just going to be looking at chapter 1, and we're going to see this theme of, of restlessness due to misplaced priorities all throughout this chapter. I mean, who knew that the shortest book in the Old Testament would have such a relevant message that stretches so long across time and generations and cultures to reach us today. This is such a relevant message. Because here in Haggai, we see God confronting his people who are living in perpetual frustration, confronting them for having misplaced priorities, just like us. So friends, as this new year approaches us, this is the time of year to do some self-evaluation and to do some reconsideration of the priorities in our lives. So if you look in your bulletin, that outline is not going to reflect what you're going to hear today. That's an outline on Proverbs 3, but maybe you can flip it over and you can follow along with me. And I, I want to point out four observations here in this text. Uh, but first, let me, let, me, let me set the scene for us. Let me give you some background information because you may not be familiar with the book of Haggai. Well, Haggai was a prophet preaching in Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. Uh, if you recall, it was because, it was, oh, sorry about that. It was because of Israel's idolatry and unfaithfulness that God eventually gave them up to the Babylonians. And it was um, uh, the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem. They, they burned the temple. They captured the people, and they took them all into exile. But after 70 years had passed, in, in accordance to God's will, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persian Empire, and then in 536 BC, God prompted 
King Cyrus of the Persians to allow a large contingency of Israelites to come back home, to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city. Now, all of those events are chronicled for us in the book of Ezra. If you ever read that book, that's what it's about. Now, there we read about the first attempt to reconstruct the temple of God in Jerusalem. They had laid the foundation, but not long after, King Cyrus died, and their pagan neighbors, who uh, were always opposed to the resettlement of Jerusalem, were able to secure a divine decree from the next Persian king in order to stop the temple reconstruction. And so by the time of Haggai, 16 years had passed since they had returned. So it is now 520 B.C., and we're told in verse 1 that a new king has ascended the throne of Persia, King Darius. And in the second year of his reign, the prophet Haggai shows up with a word from the Lord in order to call out the leaders of Jerusalem. Because the temple of God had remained unfinished, but apparently for everyone else, life went on. They continued about. The rest of the city was rebuilt in time. Everyone in the city just got used to there being life without a temple, without the worship of God. There were just more pressing issues at hand. So God and his temple and his worship were just crowded out among the list of priorities that they had. So this was the spiritual state of Jerusalem and its, and its inhabitants when Haggai suddenly shows up with a word from the Lord. So friends, my goal this morning is to walk us through chapter one, and I want to point out four key observations and draw out some appropriate applications along the way. So the first observation I see is in verses four, uh, one to four, and it's this, that the misprioritization of God in our lives usually occurs subtly and unintentionally. The misprioritization of God usually occurs subtly and unintentionally. In other words, if God has fallen down your list of priorities, I realize it's probably not something you intended to do. And perhaps you didn't even notice that he has fallen so low on your list until the word of the Lord, God's word, confronts you with that. This is usually the case, because most of us usually have the best of intentions. We do want to prioritize God. When I asked you, what is your biggest priority? You know you want to say God. You want the things of God to be up there on the list. We're not trying to ignore him, but even those with good intentions can fall into bad habits and end up having misplaced priorities where God eventually gets crowded out in the busyness of our lives. This is what happened to the Israelites in Haggai's day. They started off well. Their willingness to resettle Jerusalem was highly commendable. Because remember, their exile in Babylon lasted 70 years. So for most of these people who came back, all they knew was Babylon and life in Babylon. They had never even been to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a foreign land, and yet they knew it was their homeland. And so when the opportunity came to return, to rebuild, they were the faithful who were willing to answer the call. So they started off well. But when they got there, 
They started on the temple, but of course, as we said, opposition arose and all the rebuilding stopped. And as time passed, they drifted subtly and unintentionally into a lifestyle where God and his house were no longer high priorities. Listen to verse 2. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's not time yet. You see, the general consensus among the people was that the timing was not right yet to try it again, to begin the rebuilding process. Because first of all, remember, a royal decree was still out there, so any attempt to rebuild would be considered an act of treason. And secondly, they were also at that time in an economic downturn. There was a drought happening. Their crops were failing. They were more worried about putting food on the table than about the state of God's house. So I'm sure that they thought to themselves, yes, eventually we will get back to rebuilding the temple, but right now is just not the right time. But Haggai goes on in verses 3 to 4 to challenge them to reconsider those priorities. Look at verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So the temple is in ruins, but all of you are living in paneled houses? What does that say about your priorities? Now, the mention of paneling on the houses doesn't imply that they lived in these rich, fancy homes, but simply it's just saying they lived in finished homes. The paneling was one of the last pieces that you would add onto a Palestinian home, so it was just part of the finishing touches. So perhaps they weren't guilty of extravagance, but they were guilty of drifting into this kind of lifestyle where God has been relegated to a low priority or even just crowded out altogether. And that's why Haggai is here calling for a reprioritization. You know, there's this story that a, uh, uh, about a, a time management expert speaking to a group of business students. And you've probably heard of this before. He, he takes out this large, wide-mouthed jar, and he fills up this big jar with a bunch of fist-sized rocks. Now, when he couldn't put any more rocks into the jar, he turns to his students and he asks, is this jar full? And the class responds, yeah, yeah, it's full. He said, really? And then he pulls out a bucket of gravel and he begins to pour it in and shaking it into all of the cracks between those rocks. And then he asks the class, now is the jar full? The students, they start to see where he's going with this, and they say, no, 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 it's not full. And he says, good, good, you're right. And he, and he takes a bucket of sand, and he dumps it into the jar, and the sand fills all the crevices between the gravel and the big rocks, and they ask, is the jar full? No, the students shout again, and he says, good. And he then takes a pitcher of water, and he pours the water into the jar until it fills up all the way to the brim. And then he says, class, we've been talking about time management. So then what is the point of this illustration? 
Well, one brave student raises his hand and ventures to say, I guess the point is that no matter how full your schedule is, if you try hard enough, if you're smart enough, you can always fit more in. No, no, the speaker replied. That's not the point. The point is, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in. You see the connection there? God is the biggest, most important, most fulfilling priority in our lives. He is that big rock that needs to fill that God-sized emptiness in our souls, but we're so often caught up prioritizing other things that when God finally does cross our minds, we're left trying to cram him in to our busy schedules. But God cannot be crammed in. God must be placed in first if he's going to be there in your life at all. Now, if you're like me, rarely do you ever deliberately try to push God out of your life or intentionally drop him down on that list of priorities. You're not doing that on purpose. Instead, what typically happens is that we drift. We simply drift into this lifestyle where God is no longer a priority. And this usually happens so slowly, so subtly, that we don't even realize it's happening until it's often too late. And he becomes this big rock sitting right outside of our jar. And like the Israelites, we can always come up with another reason why it's not a good time to make a change. I, I, I know, I know I need to put God in first. I, I, I need to make, a greater, make him a greater priority in my life, but you have to understand right now, I've got this really huge exam coming up. Right, right now, I, I really have to establish some financial stability. I really need some security in my career path. Right now, my kids are so young and they need so much of my attention. It's just not a good time. Let's face it. It is never going to be a good time to reprioritize God. There's always going to be another excuse that you can find until you realize the seriousness of the matter until you see what's really at stake, you're going to just keep putting off God, coming up with another excuse, putting it off for another day. And so that leads us to our second observation, to observe the seriousness of misprioritization. The matter of misplaced priorities is a more serious thing than you think. That's our second observation. It's far more serious than you think. At first, all of this talk of reprioritizing your life, it just seems like like good advice. Good advice you can hear from from various sources. You don't have to go to church to hear this. You know, it's it's, it's like advice you might find just going to a Chinese restaurant, opening up a fortune cookie, and they'll say, hey, reprioritize your life. You're like, oh, man, that's that's really good. (laughs) I need to think about that. Or just pick up any self-help book in the local bookstore, and you might hear about reprioritizing things. But friends, this is a far more serious and far more spiritual matter than you might think. The matter of misplaced priorities really comes down to a matter of idolatry. Yes, I said it. Idolatry. 
In the Bible, idolatry is not just bowing down to a tree, bowing down to a rock or a statue. Idolatry is defined as the valuing of something or really anything over God as more worthy of your trust and of your attention and of your worship. That's practicing idolatry. And you can easily determine what you worship or what your idol is by just looking at those priorities. We prioritize that which we worship. And so you may profess Jesus as Lord, but your priorities reveal who or what really has your heart. Could be, like we said, grades or money or relationships or a successful career or a high position or greater power. These are what typically are called functional gods. Jesus might be God for you in name, but these things are really God in function, in the actual outworking of your life. So just look back at Haggai and just consider what functional gods the Israelites had prioritized over the one true God. If you look in verses 4 to 6, I I see the following things. I I see housing. I see work, talking about sowing and harvesting. There's food and drink, there's clothes, there's money or or wages. Now notice how none of those things are bad things in themselves. I mean, these are things everyone needs. So why is God rebuking the Israelites for pursuing these good things? Well, the answer is because even good things can become evil things if we want them too much. John Calvin once said, The evil does not usually lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. In other words, for the most part, our priorities are not bad in and of themselves, but they become bad, they become evil when we want them so much that we end up neglecting more important things, namely God himself. So when that happens, these lesser priorities become what we would call an idol. So misplaced priorities are really the symptoms of a more serious underlying disease of our heart that we know as idolatry. Now granted, the Israelites weren't bowing down to their homes, they weren't bowing down to their food or to their clothes, but by prioritizing these things and of course neglecting God and his temple, they were communicating to the world, to all of those those um, uh, nations surrounding them, that their homes, their food, their clothes were far more valuable, far more to be desired than God himself. They were glorifying these lesser priorities instead of glorifying God, and in that sense, they were practicing idolatry. So what this means is that idolaters are not just tribal people wearing grass skirts, dancing around some you know, statue made of stone. Now, idolaters can look like you and me, and they can be sitting right here in this sanctuary. An idolater is anyone who considers his or her more immediate priorities, whether it be food or clothes or school or career or family or relationships, as more reliable, more satisfying, more valuable than even God himself. To misplace your priorities is just as evil as worshiping at the foot of a statue because you neglect God's glory in both cases. It's just as much of an insult to the glory of God. Now hear me out. 
please don't get the impression that prioritizing God in your life means that you now should be denying or neglecting all those other priorities in life. God is not against the various priorities that would represent the gravel or the sand or the water in that illustration we just gave. He just knows that you're never going to be able to make room for him if you don't prioritize him first. So it's not wrong to want a home over your head or to want food in your belly. It's not, it's not wrong to pursue excellence in school or within your career. And it's a good thing to cherish your family and your friends. The Christian life is not about denying the goodness of these life pursuits, but it is about prioritizing all of these pursuits under our highest priority which is God. So the bottom line is this. Let's not take this whole matter of misplaced priorities lightly. This is a serious spiritual matter. This is a matter of idolatry. And if you still don't see its seriousness, well, God does have a few ways of opening up your eyes. And that leads to our third observation. God takes your misplaced priorities so seriously that even if you don't, I think he has ways of getting your attention. And I don't doubt that he is actually trying to get your attention even right now in your life. Based on what I see in verses 5 to 6 and also there in 9 to 11, this is our third observation. The frustration of your plans and pursuits in life is a divine wake-up call. The frustration of your plans and pursuits is a divine wake-up call. In other words, God is willing to bring your plans to futility in order to wake you up, to open up your eyes, to see your idols, those functional gods, all in hope of preparing your heart so that when his word does come calling, you're going to be ready to respond with faith and obedience. Notice verse 5 and verse 7 with me, and see how God repeats the same phrase. Consider your ways. Look at your life. Look at the results of your toil. He wants the Israelites to see the folly of their ways due to all of their misplaced priorities. Look, look, look there in verse 5. Let me read verse 5 and 6. Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So apparently the Israelites had finished homes, and they had fields where they can plant crops. They had clothes to wear on their backs. They had jobs, they had wages, but they still lived in perpetual frustration. They were still fruitless. They were still unsatisfied. Let's keep reading now into verse 9. Look there in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I, this is the Lord speaking, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So here is a clear connection between their neglect of God's house and their present frustration. 
And God says, he's the one who blew away what little they had. And why did he do it? Why would God blow away all their hard work? Because it says, his house lies in ruins while each is busy with his own house. Now look at verse 10. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So the Lord is the one who called for a drought in the land. The Lord is the one who frustrated their plans and pursuits. It says that clearly in the text. Friends, have you ever wondered why God does the same in your own life? Have you ever wondered why he allows so much disappointment? Were you convinced that he just had it in for you? Well, I think it should be apparent by now that God's intent is to wake us up from spiritual slumber. It's, to, it's a wake-up call that we need to reprioritize. There are times when the Heavenly Father allows his children to experience frustration and disappointment until they finally give up their stubborn self-sufficiency and self-reliance. He brings them so low so that when the Word of God does come calling, calling for them to reprioritize, now their hearts are humble and ripe and ready to respond with faith and obedience. And in verse 12, we see just that happening. The Israelites and their leaders are humbled and they're brought so low until their hearts are ripe and ready for the word of God to convict them and now to instruct them. So friends, consider your ways. Consider the outcome of your life. Are you restless? Has the fruit of all your hard work and labor been disappointing you? Have you become disillusioned with pursuing success in academia, in, in, in your career? Have you come to realize the emptiness is still there even though you have all these things that you have been wanting? Are you frustrated with God because he has been frustrating your plans? But what if? What if all this time he's just been trying to get your attention? trying to wake you up from that spiritual slumber you fell into, to get you to realize that your priorities are out of sync. So what do you do if this is the case? What do you do with this wake-up call? Perhaps you're now feeling this conviction. You see there are misplaced priorities in your life, and, and what's more, you see that really all of that, underlying all of that is idolatry. You see there is a need to reprioritize. What do you do now? Well, here is where our fourth and final observation I think is so very helpful for you. For those of you who are convicted, realizing that you need to make a change in your life and you hope that with this new year and new year resolutions, maybe this is the time for a change to happen. Notice this. Notice this fourth thing. God supplies the promise and the power needed to reprioritize your life around him. God supplies the promise and the power needed to reprioritize your life around him. You see, our good God never makes a demand of us without at the same time supplying whatever we need 
to keep that demand, to keep that command. So let's keep on reading in verse 12. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Notice how the fear of the Lord played a part in motivating a change in their priorities. So on one level, you do need the fear of God in you before you can start reprioritizing. So once you realize who exactly it is you've been neglecting, who it is you've been insulting by treating as lesser than all of these other priorities in life, then Lord willing, a a holy fear is going to kick in and it's going to start motivating you to change things in your life. But we all know that that's not going to be enough. Certainly the fear of God can motivate change, but it can't sustain that change. Subtly and unintentionally, we're just going to slip back into those bad habits. Our hearts are prone to wander, and so we end up chasing a thousand other priorities. And so the fear of God can motivate us to act, but to sustain us, we're going to need something more. We're going to need a promise from his word, and we're going to need power from his spirit. That's the more that we need. And that's exactly what we see God providing his people at the end of chapter 1. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people, of, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. The Lord sends Haggai one more time with one more message. And it's a simple four-word message. I am with you. You've neglected my house. You've neglected my glory. You've prioritized other things above me. You are valuing them as more precious than me. You are communicating to the world that they are more glorious than me. You have committed idolatry. And yet, I am with you. That's a promise. That's a promise to never leave them, to never forsake them. And then, and then in verse 14, we see the Lord stirring up their spirits now to faith and action. Look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So imagine what the Israelites were thinking to themselves. The Lord is with us. No matter the opposition coming from our enemies, no matter all the roadblocks, the Lord is with us. He'll provide for us. He'll protect us. He'll preserve us. Why were we so worried? Why are we chasing after houses and food and clothes and money? Why are we putting so much time and attention into these things? The Lord, oh, it's the Lord. He's still the biggest, most important, most fulfilling priority in our lives. And we don't have to chase after him like all we do, all these lesser things. He's the one chasing after us. He's the one drawing near to us. He's the one coming to us, bringing a promise. And by the end of chapter 1, 
we see that their priorities have truly changed. Whatever they were doing before, they, they, they put that down. Whatever they were chasing, they stopped, and the Spirit stirs them up, and they, they devote themselves once again to the rebuilding of the temple, all the while trusting that all those things that they were worrying about, all those things that they were chasing after, will be provided for them by their good God, who has promised to be with them. And some 500 years later, their God would go so far to keep that promise that he actually came down to be with them in person, in the person of Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. You see, before Jesus came, you would have to go to the temple if you wanted to be with God. The temple was the symbol of God's nearness, of his presence, of being with his people. But now, something greater than the temple has come. In fact, Jesus spoke of himself as the temple of God. The temple in Jerusalem made of wood and stone was just a symbol of God's presence. Jesus is the very reality. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And upon his death for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the Father, our Lord Jesus promises to still be with us, to send his own spirit to live in us. The New Testament says that the Christian's body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. For the Christian, God is with you in the most intimate, most immediate deepest sense what more is there for God to prove that he is that he really meant it when he said I am with you what more could he do than to give you his own spirit so Christian if God is with you if the spirit of God is living in you why do you worry if God is for us who can be against us if he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us how will he not also with his son graciously give us all things and the all things would include all those priorities that are often pulling you in all different directions why then would you spend your days chasing after them and putting them first over the very God who is for you in Christ, with you in Christ, and willing to graciously give you with Christ all things? And so I pray that the Spirit of God would likewise stir up your spirit this morning, that you might devote yourself to seeking first God and his kingdom and his righteousness trusting that all those other priorities will be added unto you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that is so needed, so relevant for all of us are convicted by our misplaced priorities and how underlying all of it is a sinful idolatry. And so we confess and we ask for your spirit to stir us up, that we might believe your promise that you are with us so closely in Christ and in the Spirit 
that we might not fear the things of this world, that our only fear will be a holy, good fear of you, and that we might walk away from this place with a commitment to put you first in all things. In Jesus' name.